Morning, friends. It's good to see all of you. Let's um, let me begin by praying for us. Jeremy is passing out a handout um, as I do that. Uh, Father in heaven, we're grateful for um, this season, the season of Advent, the season of the time when we particularly um, focus our attention on um, remembering um, the promises that you've made to us in your son, Jesus Christ, and and petitioning even um, with you for his return, um, that he would come soon. Um, Indeed, Lord, we ask that um, our Lord, though he tarries in terms of his physical return, um, would come to us this morning by his spirit, um, by the spirit that you've poured out upon us, um, that we might draw near into your presence um, and worship um, as we gather together um, as the body of Christ here on earth. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would do that for us, that you'd be merciful in that way, and we ask also that your same Holy Spirit would attend our conversation this morning as we um, discuss uh, matters of your word. And we pray um, these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, So Jeremy is passing out a a little handout there um, for the next couple sections in um, chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we are in a a series right now um, looking at um, uh, the Westminster Confession that we began just a few weeks ago. Um, uh, last Sunday, of course, we had missionaries, um, uh, Jeff and uh, Jeff, um, John and Ellen Berger um, were with us um, in Sunday schools. So we took a week off, but we're back to the confession today. Uh, before I jump into um, new stuff this morning, are there any questions, any feedback, any comments? We talked several weeks ago about the historical context and background of the Confession of Faith, and then last sun, or two Sundays ago, uh, we began to talk about the first chapter, which is on Scripture, and we talked about things like the nature of God's revelation in creation, as well as um, His special revelation that He gives us directly by His Spirit, which, which at one time took place in dreams and visions and um, all sorts of things, and angels, um, but now um, has been written down um, for the establishment and comfort of the church in the Holy Scripture. And we talked also about um, what books constitute Holy Scripture, um, the canonical books, and um, we talked about um, why the apocryphal books are not considered um, Scripture. Any any questions or comments, anything to talk about from those things? Yes, ma'am. Kathina. When did the church start doing what? Like creating extra biblical confessions. Creating confessions. Like the Westminster Confession, for example? That's a great question, yeah. Um, so uh, the confessions of the church, so to speak, um, typically have come out of a kind of polemic context. Um, I would say that um, the first you know, great confession of the church, so to speak, would be the Council of Nicaea um, in the early fourth century. Um, And that, of course, took place in the context of a debate over the divinity of Christ, um, whether he was, um, as Arius claimed, um, simply the first created being, or whether he was truly the divine Son of God, um, equal with the Father in terms of his um, stature and glory and and essence and all of those things. Um, And so that's the, Nicaea is considered the first of the great ecumenical councils of the church, and they produced a document, um, uh, which, you know, a large part of which is the Nicene Creed that we frequently recite 
Um, that creed was um, amended in 381 at Constantinople, and that's actually the version that we um, confess at Constantinople. Um, there were other questions about the natures of the person of Christ um, and how they uh, interacted with each other, what it meant that he was both human and divine at the same time. Um, and then, of course, you have other councils after that um, that come um, dealing with the divinity of the Holy Spirit and other issues in the church. Um, so that, that is probably the best, I think, answer to your question in terms of when we saw things like the Westminster Confession where um, leaders uh, from the church get together and in, a, in the context of, a, of a, you know, essentially a committee, um, hammer out what it is that the church believes that the scripture teaches and attempts to summarize it. Um, so, and certainly the, the members of the Westminster Conf or Assembly would have seen themselves to be in continuity with those great councils of the church. Now, the difference, of course, is that the Westminster Assembly is basically a, a gathering of the National Church of England as opposed to um, the ecumenical councils um, like Nicaea or Constantinople or Ephesus, uh, which are gatherings of a much broader, um, diverse group of, of leaders from all over the what at that time was the Christian world. Um, so that would be a difference for sure. Um, but that, in terms of when these things first started happening, um, I mean, you could, you could argue that the first time this happens is in Acts 15, um, where there's that um, issue that arises within the church over Jews and Gentiles and how they should relate to one another. And so a council of elders and pastors and leaders of the church, um, some of the apostles, those that were still living, um, gather in Jerusalem and they, hammer out, well, what does it mean? How can a Gentile person be a part of the church? What needs to happen? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep uh, the food laws of the Old Testament? Do they need to, um, you know, do certain things in order to prove their, um, their being included into the people of God? Um, so that, I guess, is, you know, in terms of the principle of, and then they produced a document, right? They produced a letter that was sent out to the churches to give them instruction about um, what needed to happen. Um, and so I guess, you know, you could think about it in that way, that that really is kind of the first example of this sort of thing where leaders in the church get together to, to really, in that context, they're trying to meditate on what the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of Christ has to do with, um, with their current situation. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, Dad, welcome. This is my father, Barry Anderson, in town. Yes, sir. Yeah, the Apostles' Creed is not um, an ecumenical document that, that we can trace back to a particular council. Um, it's, it's more just something that developed over time organically um, and became, you know, just used, became, like, essentially acquired authority through it being used um, informally and then more and more formally over time. Um, so it's more kind of a, a, a ground a grassroots up sort of document rather than Nicaea where the Nicene Creed is all the leaders of the church getting together and saying this is what we believe um, so the Apostles Creed I mean there's a lot of debate over you know who wrote the Apostles Creed it almost certainly was not the Apostles um, uh, regardless of its name um, but it does develop early uh, we think but but there's no there's no particular council that got together and write wrote the Apostles Creed it is something that developed over time and acquired authority in that way, yeah. But that's, that is a big distinction between, and the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is actually the, the statement of what at that time was the global church um, speaking as one. 
and differentiating um, orthodoxy from heresy. Um, Arius, of course, would not have been able to, to sign the Nicene Creed and was actually condemned by that council. Um, his teaching that, that Jesus was, was merely um, a great man, essentially. Yeah. Anything else? Any other questions? Those are great questions. I, and they really just kind of set the context for what the confession is trying to do. Now, of course, the Westminster Confession is far more in-depth than the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or some of those early documents of the church. Um, and, and yet, um, that is also connected to its polemic context as well. It's also worth pointing out that the Westminster Confession met for a much longer amount of time, Westminster Assembly, um, than any of those councils did. Um, and that's part of the explanation for that too. Good. Well, let's, let's jump into some of this new material here this morning. You can see on your handout. Um, um, Jeremy, are there extra copies anywhere if people come in late? Right there in the sound booth, I think. That's where he's indicating. Excellent. Very good. Okay, so section four. Um, here we're talking about the authority of the scripture, um, why um, we should submit to it, why we should um, heed what it says, um, why we should order the life of the church and the life of the Christian uh, believer around it. So the, the writers, the divines um, state, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, so not only believed but also obeyed, um, submitted to in terms of the decisions that we make in our lives um, and in the church in terms of how we order our our life together and our worship and all of those kinds of things, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself. Um, so the authority of scriptures don't, don't depend on the testimony, the vindication, the authentication of any, any man, any created man, um, or uh, any church, even the church um, at large, speaking with one voice but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Um, so do you see the argument that the, the divines are making here? Um, they're, they're trying to say that we're not going to locate the authority of the scriptures in anything other than God himself. Um, it is the reality that the scriptures are the word of God, that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they are God's own revelation, that they have the authority that they do. Um, that's not an authority that, we, that can be granted to it or can be um, ceded to it um, by any institution, by any person. Um, and, and of course, this is a, a classical Protestant statement about the authority of the scriptures um, in contrast to um, uh, what is believed and taught in the Roman Catholic Church, which is that the church has a role in establishing the authority of the scriptures, um, that we can know what the scriptures are um, and why they have authority because the church has decided that, that this is, these are what the scriptures are and, and this is why they're authoritative. Does that make sense? So this is a very polemic kind of statement. Yes, yes, in, in, terms of, in terms of God's, so you're referring to the, when the books of the New Testament were, because the Old Testament canon that we received today was simply 
the received scriptures at the time of Jesus. But okay. yet yeah, the, the New Testament canon um, comes about. And so this is, a, I mean, I'm glad you asked that question, Donna, because this is a big argument um, that takes place within the context um, even today about, well, why should we trust the scriptures? You know, they're just a bunch of, you know, um, uh, p clergy got together and, and they decided what was going to be scripture and what wasn't. And they, they didn't like certain documents that were out there, and so they excluded them and they um, allowed others to be part of it. Um, so you, you hear this kind of argument um, about that, 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 that essentially argues that the scriptures are a human creation, a creation of, uh, of, of the church. And as you're pointing out, there, there was a moment in time. Um, now, to be clear, there wasn't like a, the scriptures did, there, there's early letters that are written that, that seem to describe what books have been accepted as canonical, but there was not in the same way a council of the church that got together and said, these are the books. There's no ecumenical council, does that make sense, that determines the canonicity. Um, rather, what happens, what I would argue happens, is that um, the books, as, and you can, there are, of course, great resources on this. Um, a guy named Michael Kruger, who I quoted last or two weeks ago, um, who is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, I believe, um, is doing great work. He has several books on the development of the canon that I would highly recommend. He also just has, if you just Google Michael Kruger, canon, C-A-N-O-N, um, then you'll find articles by him on the internet or, or lectures. And I guess he's got great resources for this. But essentially what he would argue, what I would argue, is that um, the, the New Testament scriptures acquired their own authority um, based on um, the fact that they were acknowledged to be the word of God, that they were written by the apostles or the apostolic company, um, and that, that their authority was not, you know, um, determined by the church. It's not like the church looked at all these documents and said, well, we're going to pick these that we like and exclude these that, don't, that we don't like. Um, the church merely recognized the authority that was inherent in the documents themselves. Um, and, and honestly, the authority that they had acquired through um, not only their historicity, but through their use and through the practice um, that had developed very early on in terms of um, their identity as the scriptures. So I would, I, would, I would say that the church did not get together and sort of determine what the canon was. I would say the church got together at some time and said, well, here's the canon. Um, let's just uh, acknowledge what already exists. Um, so that, that's how I would describe what you're pointing out. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're fine. Please. I welcome conversation. Other books? Canonical? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on, honestly, I think as, as you look at the data, I don't know, I know Scott's done some reading on this too, so he can weigh in at some point. Um, as I look at the historical data, um, my sense is that it really, these modern sort of perspectives that, um, that the canon was a super debated thing and there, were, there was a lot of ambiguity about which books are scripture and which weren't is really overblown. Um, if you look at some of the, for example, um, gospels um, that are supposedly, um, you know, written by the apostles or, you know, the gospel of Mary, um, this I think supposed to be by Mary Magdalene or the gospel of Thomas that's supposed to be by um, Thomas the apostle. 
Um, these books weren't written very clearly. They weren't used at all until the second or third century. They didn't exist. Um, and their teaching is so different in its nature and its content and its style um, than the, the canonical gospels that we recognize today. Um, that it, it's not like Christian communities were, you know, reading from the Gospel of Thomas and then they were reading from the Gospel of Mark. And then along came some bishops and they decided, no, you, you have to stop using the Gospel of Thomas now. Um, so, so those Gospels particularly are considered Gnostic works um, and, and they arise during, and this is, you know, the, the, in the, the, the um, second century of the church, Gnosticism was the big, um, in really into the third century, um, area of debate and polemics and apologetics that was taking place in the church. Um, and so the Gospel of Thomas is very clearly a, a sort of Gnostic work. Um, an, another example is the, the, probably the one book that, that is frequently used um, and cited by some of the church fathers um, is the Shepherd of Hermas, um, which some folks may have heard of that document. Um, it's, a long, it's actually a pretty long um, work. Um, so that, that was a, a, a book that had some weight, had some authority, so to speak, informally within the early church, um, but it was never one that was um, treated as scripture in the same way, and it clearly is written, um, I think it's, it's the early second century, I believe, is when the Shepherd of Hermas is written, and um, it just simply doesn't have, well, it's, it doesn't come out of um, the apostolic band, basically. It doesn't come out of that first generation. And for my money, thinking biblical, biblical, biblical in a biblical theological way, um, this is why it is so important to me that the canon of Scripture is concluded by 70 AD. Um, uh, this is a, something that not everybody in the PCA necessarily agrees on. Um, I'm often giving candidates a hard time in committee um, when they're, they're citing, you know, well, I think the Gospel of John was written in like 95 or something like well, how does that work, you know? Um, and, and, and part of the, the reason why I think this is so important, that the New Testament was written quickly and early, a couple things about that. One is, remember that everyone who writes the New Testament is a Jew, um, and they were people of the book, right? They were people whose um, worship um, was always, and life together, was always constituted around scripture, written scripture. Um, that they understood, I believe, um, that Jesus, remember Jesus in the Great, great um, Commission says, um, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you um, to do. Um, and I think the disciples, or the apostles rather, would have heard that commission from their Lord as he ascended to heaven and understood this doesn't just mean verbal teaching or instruction that we're out to go, go out and you know, have a preaching ministry. Um, this means that we're supposed to lay the foundation for the church. We're supposed to take everything that we've learned from Jesus and put it in writing um, so that it can be preserved. <coughs> um, I believe that in Acts chapter 6, where the disciples or the apostles say that we need to commit ourselves to prayer and the word of God, um, and so we need help with the ministry of the church, um, what they're primarily talking about there is that we need to start figuring out how to get some of this stuff written down. Um, I, and remember the context there. They, these men didn't know how long they were going to live. And in fact, some of them didn't live long at all, right? Um, they, they were very clearly um, being targeted for death um, by the religious and political authorities of Israel at that time. 
And as Acts traces out, it didn't matter where they went in the Mediterranean world, those same authorities would continue to come after them and try to kill them. Um, and so, of course, they would have wanted to write the scriptures. Of course, they would have wanted to get these things down. Um, and so I, I believe that Matthew was written very early um, in the first decade of the church, in the 30s sometime. And I, I don't, I, there's this modern preference, um, and it shows up in lots of different ways, that everything has to happen late, right? That it takes a long time for things to develop. Um, I, think, I think a lot of it is um, chronological snobbery, honestly. Um, you know, we, we think that modern people are the only people that are capable of, of doing complicated things quickly. And that is not true um, the, of the ancient world. Um, in many ways, the, it's very likely that the apostles were just from a human perspective, far more qualified to sit down and write the kinds of things that they did um, than a modern person would be in terms of the relative differences and the way that education worked and people were trained. Um, remember, Matthew was um, a tax collector, right? He was a scribe, he was a learned man. Um, he knew how to write, he knew um, all of those things. Um, so in any, in any, any so I think the, the point of this is that when you see the canon as being um, and the reason I think the canon ends in 70 AD is because, well, several things. One is which none of the books of the New Testament mention um, the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what takes place in 70 AD. And if those books had been written after 70 AD, you certainly would imagine that they would have because that would have been the second vindication of Jesus as a prophet, right? This would have been the double witness. Jesus made two primary prophecies in his life. One, that he would die and then be raised from the dead on the third day. And secondly, that the temple and the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed within a generation of his life. Um, and so obviously, all the New Testament is constantly testifying to the veracity of Jesus's first claim as a prophet, that he had died and then been raised again by God as an indication of his divinity and of his son, that he was God's true son. And so it'd be really bizarre in my mind if the second part of that, um, the second major thing that he prophesied again and again, that he was on public record saying over and over again would take place, had happened, that none of the people who wrote the New Testament would have thought it would have been worth mentioning that, oh, and this took place. And so that's another reason why you can be confident and believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, who he says he is. Um, so I think just, and I know that's an argument, for what we call an argument from silence. I get that. Um, I understand that sometimes people don't like those kinds of arguments, but I think it's, personally, I think it's pretty compelling. Um, also, I think it's important to say that, um, that, that when Jesus comes again as he does, not in the flesh, but by his spirit carrying out that prophecy in 70 AD, um, it's important to say that this is the end. This is the, the end of that generation. Um, this is the end of the spirit speaking um, in this particular way, in this kind of revelatory way. And so it makes sense to me from a, from a sort of just biblical theological perspective that 70 AD would cap um, the end of revelatory um, scripture writing um, because of the way in which um, the destruction of Jerusalem was such a climatic event, um, the way in which it, it moved the church and indeed I would say the world into a new redemptive era um, where there was now no longer no temple, there was no possibility of animal sacrifice, all of that has been done. And, and of course, that's continued up until the present day, right? There's never been another temple in Jerusalem. There's never been um, temple worship in the way that it's described in Exodus or Leviticus um, ever again. And that's a good thing, by the way, right? We should not be sending money to Israel so that they can rebuild the temple. 
Um, that, that is happening because of God's providence and faithfulness, and it would be um, blasphemous for that to take place um, again, I believe. All right, so anyway, I don't know if that helps. I don't remember who I was talking to. I just kind of... Um, but that, those are things, those are reasons I would say why the books that were chosen were chosen, and I would say there was not even that much debate over which books were and which books weren't part of the New Testament canon. It was very clear because of their, the origins of the books that are included um, and their connection to the apostolic company, those apostles who received either directly themselves or who were quickly part of that community, that great commission from Jesus to teach them all that I have teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, um, that, that we give them, that they were recognized as being scripture. Yeah, Billy. Right, there's the, go ahead. Right. Yeah, I, I would probably quibble a little bit with the idea that, uh, that Athanasius said it and then it was just accepted everywhere. Um, I, w I would say what Athanasius is doing there in that letter is more just recognizing what everyone already understands to be the case. Um, and that, but it isn't like you're saying, it, again, it wasn't, there was no council that got together and sorted through a pile of potential manuscripts and, and condensed them into the New Testament. It was, it was genuinely, I believe, the work of the Spirit over time, um, giving uh, informal um, we might say, um, organic authority to the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, as they were developed and used. Um, and the church merely began to recognize that um, as the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that you're right. That letter from Athanasius in the fourth century is an important place. Yep. Sam. No, absolutely. I, they are. They're, they're deeply important to the life and the growth of the church. Um, certainly, we would not say that the Nicene Creed is um, inspired by, the, by God in the way that the scriptures are, but I think it's, a, it's obviously a trustworthy document that in God's providence was, um, was put together by the church um, 
and, it, and it's part of the reason why the Lord in his providence um, ended the persecution of the church and established Christianity as the religion of the, er of the Roman Empire. Um, the Nicene Creed could not have been written in the way that it was in the second century, for example, um, because of the way that the church was persecuted and, and dispersed. It, it took God and his providence um, ordaining the things that took place even in the life of Constantine um, to, to happen so that the church could come together in the way that it did um, and, and make the kinds of statements that it, that it began to make. As a, it, It's a really interesting thing about God's providence in that the time in which the great ecumenical councils of the church were written um, happened during a time when God and his providence had made essentially Christianity to the, the um, religion of the land, um, which, which enabled the church to have the time and space that it needed to articulate its theology in a new way. Um, so yes, absolutely. And that's why we recite frequently um, the Nicene Creed in our worship, because we understand um, that we are continuing to practice the same kind of doctrine and faith um, that existed at that early council. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another book that's helpful um, is by Herman Ritterboss. Um, it's called Redemptive History in the New Testament Scriptures. Um, so if you want to do a deep dive into this topic of canonicity, that's another one that I would recommend. It's more written from a theological perspective um, than, than a sort of historical perspective, but I think it's really helpful. Um, that's Ritterboss, um, Redemptive History in the New Testament Scriptures. Yes, yeah, Scott. Say it again. Yeah, it's called who, who Chose the Books of the New Testament? Who Chose the Books in the New Testament by Charles Hill. Charles Hill. Yeah, if you want to go deeper, you mentioned that Bridger has stuff. He has a blog, but he also has a, um, a seminary course online. Yeah, in the Gospel Coalition, right, yeah, website? Yeah, so mm -hmm. you can, if you want to go deep. It's got like 10 hours of content or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great resource. Yep. Good, these are great questions. I appreciate it. Um, the, the important point to make here, though, and we're about to wrap up because the kids are going to come sing, is that we, we really definitively want to say that, that it's, not, it's not you or me, it's not even the Council of Nicaea um, that grants the scriptures the authority that they have. Um, rather, what we're doing when we acknowledge, when we, when we receive the authority of the scriptures and place ourselves under them, we are simply acknowledging that the scriptures are, in fact, the word of God, and that they are his revelation. And as such, um, we submit to them. We believe um, what they teach and we obey what they command um, because they are themselves um, the word of God. They are, and their authority um, rests um, in, that, in their character as God's word. Um, and I, I think that's a really, yeah, I mean, historically, that's been a very important um, point. Um, so a couple quote, or just one quote here from Robert Lethem, um, who's got a book on the Westminster Assembly that's been really helpful for me as I work through these things in this class. He says, here the origin of scripture, it's being inspired by God, is the basis of the authority um, that exists over the church. <coughs> in this, it does not depend on human testimony, including that of the church. Scripture's authority depends whole on God, its author, its author. It carries the authority of God himself, who gave it in order to commit to his writing 
um, his revelation of himself and his will for the church, thus preserving it and propagating it. Um, yeah, so it's, it's scripture's character that grants its authority, its origin um, in the word of God, the mouth of God. Yeah, Eric. Absolutely. This, this is a, the classical Protestant view of the scriptures, and I would argue that it is actually in the Westminster Confession of Faith that the classical Protestant view of the scriptures is most clearly um, proclaimed and established in terms of that Reformation context. Um, and, and that's, you know, they, they start here, right? They start with chapter one on the scripture, which is a, which is a different move than other um, Reformed um, Protestant confessions um, during this period. Um, they really f felt like it was a, a, a deeply important epistemological um, point to make that um, what the scriptures are and, and wherein their authority is derived. And yes, it absolutely is a different view than the Roman Catholic Church, um, uh, which essentially believes that the church um, constitutes the scriptures, that, it, that it, it not only recognizes but actually grants the scriptures their authority. Um, in a fundamental way. Um, and, and, and one of the downsides of that view is that the Roman Catholic canon, so to speak, is not set. It's open. It's not closed. And the reason we know that is because of the Council of Trent, they decided that additional books um, in the Old Testament were canonical. Um, and they added them. And so that's why, um, you know, that we talked with the Apocrypha last week. But that's the, that's the real life consequences of having this view that the church determines the canonicity of the scriptures is that you don't really have a closed canon. Um, it's always open to revision. It's always open to the church determining later on that, that something um, should be added to it or something should be taken away from it. Um, and, and we should be very careful about these things. Remember um, with the words of Revelation, right? Um, where John says, um, if anyone were to add to or take away from this testimony, um, let him be condemned, right? That this is, it's, it's dangerous stuff um, to mess with the word of God. And, and I think that's, yeah, that, that's, there, there, are, there are huge consequences for what maybe seem like um, pedantic debates about, well, you know, where do the scripture's authority come from? And, you know, you really begin to work these things out and they really do make an immense difference. Um, let's see, I don't know if the kids are ready or not. It is 10 o'clock. All right. So nobody go anywhere. Um, we're going to take a break. I'll pray for us. Um, so in a minute, the kids are going to come in and sing Christmas carols for us um, that they've been working on. Um, so get your phones ready. <laughs> 